0: Make sure this thing's unmuted before we get started. It's good to see everybody this morning and to have the privilege to be able to, to gather together um, on this week, um, a week where we do sit between uh, Thanksgiving uh, and the week behind, and we prepare um, our hearts for um, the upcoming Christmas season, the Advent season that we will begin to celebrate together um, next week. Uh, I'm going to get emotional before I even begin. Sorry. shared a video with you uh, here this morning. I'm going to be completely vulnerable for a minute. Um, you know, most of, most of you are aware of the fact that um, Ali and I uh, came to you by way of a return um, from the field. Um, we served two years um, in Southeast Asia among unreached, unengaged peoples. And uh, as I wrestled through what to to share with you all this week, um, Jeff, he actually encouraged me um, to take advantage of this opportunity. Um, Having lived under the graceful provision of Southern Baptist churches uh, who give sacrificially to ensure that unreached and unengaged peoples are reached with the message of the gospel, um, he thought that it would be suitable uh, for me to maybe share uh, some thoughts with you um, about how Lottie Moon, a Christmas offering that the IMB does each year um, that is specifically uh, for the funding um, of uh, mission work among unreached, unengaged peoples. Um, he figured that that would be um, a right thing for me to advocate for since um, we did get to experience the graceful provision of that. Um, that being said... Um, I do want to make a pitch because we still have friends out there. We have friends, for one, who have made the choice, um, an extremely challenging choice in this season of the year when we're able to spend time gathered around the table with our loved ones to celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, this is one of the most challenging times of the year um, to, to be one who receives the call to go and leaves from your family, and leaves from uh, your, your friends, and your loved ones, and from your work, and to be able to go for the sake of the spread of the gospel. But I have friends um, who have made that conscious choice because they consider their life as worthless in comparison to the glory of knowing that through their presence there, that many people who have little to no access to the gospel will gain access to it and they are able to be sustained there in their work on account of the generosity of southern baptist churches. I don't know if you're familiar with Lottie Moon Christmas offering or not but um, throughout the course of the regular year um, our church contributes um, to the cooperative program which is a uh, just a combined effort um, of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, where all of these mon- uh, all of the money goes into one single pot and then it's distributed out among um, the International Mission Board, among the North American Mission Board, and several other entities that fall within the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, but uh, coming into this uh, this advent season, um, the Southern Baptist Convention works in cooperation with, um, the International Mission Board um, to basically unrestrictedly um, pass off 100% um, of the funding um, to go directly into the pockets of people um, who are laboring among unreached and unengaged peoples, and so I hope that maybe even through the course of my message this morning that you would be uh, inspired, that you'd be challenged to consider, um, that you would be inspired or challenged to, and considered, or to consider. Um, giving to support um, this time of year. Um, You know, I want to make myself available to you, um, even after service, if you have questions about how you can do that. Um, I would be happy to um, answer um, any questions that you might have. But um, that being said, I digress, and um, I'll get started this morning um, and share with you what the Lord has laid on my heart. And I'm going to invite you to turn with me uh, to Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 18 through 20. Once again, I uh, sit in a unique spot being able to share with you um, on this threshold between the Thanksgiving season and the Advent season that will begin next week. Um, and so that being said, I get the fortunate opportunity to embrace themes of both. And so I begin by saying thanks for the, the, the ways that this church uh, gives generously to support um, the work of the gospel around the world. Um, but then that being said... Um, then we turn our lives. I mean, we turn our eyes this morning um, to a passage of text that doesn't take us far from where we are. Um, if you've been with us through the course of the past couple of weeks, you'll know that we have recently started the series um, through the Gospel of Luke, and so um, we're not going to venture out of the Gospels this morning. Um, we will just turn our attention over um, to Matthew chapter 28, um, and rather than drawing your attention to the beginning of the life of Jesus. Um, we will look rather uh, to the conclusion of his life here on earth. Many of you, um, there are many of you in this room uh, who have worked in the education system. You're probably familiar then um, with an age-old rebuttal of elementary students the world over when they're asked by a teacher to do something. They often say, you're not my mom or you're not my dad. Uh, You know, on the one hand, when children offer this rebuttal, Uh, they're usually correct. It's generally not their mom or their dad who's offering uh, the instruction. Um, However, students are missing the point generally that when a parent drops them off at school, they're effectively transferring authority from themselves to the teachers and administrators of the school. Um, It isn't to say though that children, if they could see the point, would behave any different. You know, my lack of experience as a parent really prevents me from making an illustration out of Alessi. You know, she doesn't really talk back that much yet, but um, based on my own childhood, I do recall that, you know, though my rebuttals may have been different than, you're not my mom or you're not my dad, um, I often acted with no regards for my parents' instruction. Uh, That's just a clear demonstration of my rejection of their authority. At the heart of disobedience stands a question of authority. We take, for instance, the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. In Genesis chapter three verses one through six, uh, the serpent said to the woman, "Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree or eat of any tree in the garden?" And the woman said to the serpent, "We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, "You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die." But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So it's quite clear from the start here that Eve had questions about the authority of the one who told her not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Although Eve's response in this case appeared to fr- at first to be proper... ...it's at the point that she added that the fruit was not to be touched... Uh, ...that her deepest wanderings were revealed. It seems that Eve viewed the Lord's command to not eat the fruit as restrictive... ...for she took it upon herself to add that they were also not permitted to touch it. The Lord did in fact tell them not to eat the fruit... ...but he didn't say anything about touching the fruit. Had Eve not immediately fallen into the trap and eaten the fruit... Um, the reality is, is that she would have probably um, even added to that and said, we're not even allowed to look at the fruit. Um, the reality is, is that we often go out of our way to amplify restrictive instruction to justify disobedient behavior. It's frequently the thought that we're being restricted that causes us to question authority. But what if restrictive instruction isn't restrictive at all, but really for the good of the one receiving it? Now, in the case of a teacher or even a parent, can't always say for certain that uh, they have the best interest of their children or of their students in mind whenever they give them instruction. That may not always be the case. But the reality is is that when the Lord tells us to do something, he most certainly has our best interest in mind. Um, when the Lord instructed Adam and Eve to not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he clearly indicated that the con- consequence for doing so would be death. In effect, what he said was, if you choose to eat the fruit, then you will surely die. Now it may be crazy for thinking this way, um, but um, I may be crazy for thinking this way. But I perceive that even though Adam and Eve thought that they were being restricted by being unable to eat the fruit, um, the Lord really had their best interest in mind here. He knew that they would die if they took the fruit and ate it. The Apostle Paul made a claim similar to this in Romans eight twenty-eight. Uh, that appears to support the idea that the Lord has in mind the best interest of those whom he calls according to his purpose. Romans 8 28 uh, most of you are probably familiar with it but it says that and we know that for those who love God all things work together for for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Um, Pastor Jeff began last week um, in his sermon to make a case for the dual nature of the Messiah that the Messiah was both fully God and fully man Um, If we are convinced of this reality, then we can be sure that Jesus, being fully God, he shares authority with the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's shocking, however, that Jesus willingly chose to surrender the full range of his authority when he took on flesh. Paul said in his letter to the Philippians, in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Commenting on these verses, uh, Pastor and theologian Roland Barnes says, At his incarnation and in his humiliation, Jesus chose not to exercise his authority in the same way he did before. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism states, he was made under the law. He, who with the Father and the Spirit expressed his sovereign will in the authority of his holy law, was now subject to this law. Jesus, in his incarnation, experienced the humiliation of being under the authority of mere man, parents, civil rulers, and so on. He chose not to exercise the full privileges of his authority, and he allowed himself to be governed, even abused by mortal and evil men. And then the Apostle Paul goes to say in Philippians 2, 8-11, that this anomaly of Jesus' incarnation and his subsequent humiliation that those were the product of his obedience to the will of the Father. And on account of his obedience, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should, should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as we approach the section of Scripture, which is commonly referred to as the Great Commission, It's essential that we have a right understanding of Jesus' authority. It's based on his authority that he gave the Great Commission. Having been resurrected from the dead, Jesus' earthly ministry um, was accomplished, and the full range of his authority was restored to him. Um, But it was in the moments following his resurrection that Jesus called together the eleven disciples, a number which we know had dwindled on account of Judas' uh, betrayal of Jesus. And he gave them what has become known as the marching orders of the church, the Great Commission. So if you haven't turned there yet, I would invite you to turn with me uh, to Matthew 28 as we look at verses 18 through 20. It says, And Jesus came and said to the eleven, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you uh, for the fact that you um, that you did send your son into this world, and that he did willingly surrender his the full range of his authority in order um, to dwell among men. And Lord, we thank you. Um, even as um, we move from this th- season of Thanksgiving and into a season of an- Advent, Lord, we, um, we are um, tremendously grateful for the fact that, um, that you sent your Son because we know, Father, that um, had he not entered into this world, um, Lord, that um, we may not have the opportunity to inherit the gift of salvation. And so now, even as we turn our attention um, from the beginning of Jesus' life, to the conclusion of his life, the final words that he offered um, to his disciples, Lord, I pray that um, you would help us to recall at all times that um, this Jesus, both fully God and fully man, um, possessing the authority, um, co-equal authority with the Father and the Holy Spirit that he has commissioned us um, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, Lord, and I pray that um, even as um, I share this morning that, Lord, um, even as you have stirred in my heart Um, to give me the words um, to share this morning that you would speak through me by the power of your Spirit and that you would be honored and glorified um, through our time together. And we pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So assuming that you have actually understood then and surrendered to the authority of Jesus, um, there's no need to really debate the implications of what these verses say. Those who are fully surrendered to the authority of Jesus go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So my question to you, then, is do you trust the authority of Jesus? Do you trust that, uh, that Jesus, being fully God, um, that he possessed a co-equal um, authority with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit? Then, if so, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. I'll be clear in saying that I believe that the Great Commission, um, that it applies to every follower of Jesus. No one has yet to successfully point out in Scripture any exceptions. So if you're a follower of Jesus, which is code for surrendering to his authority, uh, you would do well to heed and to obey his words. The caveat, however, is that even though I believe Jesus' intention in giving these orders is not that every follower of Jesus would go, but... Um, I believe that. Um, uh, <laughs> sorry, I believe that even though Jesus' intention in giving um, this commission um, is not necessarily that everyone would go in the fullest sense, meaning that they would cross over geographical and cultural boundaries for the sake of the spread of the gospel among the nations, um, that they would leave behind past life, their family, their friends, their job, their home, and cross uh, uh, cross boundaries for the sake of the spread of the gospel. Um, Even though not all would go in that sense, um, um, it is my prayer that uh, some in this room would, but not all will. Um, Still yet, the goal towards which every follower of Jesus should be striving um, is for disciples to be made among all nations. Now to be sure, um, discipleship ought to take place in the context of the local church. Just because we say the Great Commission doesn't necessarily belong to every follower of Jesus in the sense that they will actually cross geographical and cultural boundaries for the sake of the spread of the gospel. That doesn't mean that we get to sit idly by as those, um, those who do go um, leave from within the, uh, the confines of our church and go. Um, because that discipleship ought to still take place in the local church, and it ought to take uh, take place here within the local church as much as it ought to take place among the nations. Um, The Great Commission isn't a summons, really, to forsake the task of making disciples in the local context. Every follower of Jesus is personally endowed with the task of evangelizing the lost, Um, That's made clear by 1 Peter 2, 9, where we um, are identified as a a chosen race a royal priesthood who are set apart to proclaim the excellencies um, of him who has saved us. Um, And so the task of evangelism, although it's often associated with and linked to the Great Commission, um, the reality is is that that is something that every follower of Jesus is expected to do in their day-to-day life, to be bold in their witness um, to others. In addition to that, those who, um, those whom the message of the gospel is shared with, even here in the local context, also uh, to be poured into, to be taught and instructed in the ways of the word so that they might grow up in their faith as well. Now, discipleship in the local church, I do believe, however, ought to be informed by um a vision that even in this video that you were heard being described as uh, the great multitude. And we even sing about it this morning. It's this vision that's described in Revelation 7, 9, 10. Uh, 9 and 10 of a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language surrounding the throne of Jesus. Falling at his feet, proclaiming his praises. And that is the ultimate end to which every activity that transpires within the church ought to be aimed. Um, it, uh, it ought to be informed discipleship in the local church ought to be informed by that vision, and it ought to be driven by our desire um, to live in obedience of the mission to make disciples of all nations. Ryan King, who is a director of missions at a church in Texas, provides a helpful description of the healthy movement, or the healthy involvement of the local church in the Great Commission. Says that the application of the Great Commission is not solely to go, But to pray the Lord of the harvest for more laborers, to send them out as the church of Antioch did with Barnabas and Saul, and to support missionaries as fellow workers in the truth. It is a corporate endeavor that involves every member of Christ's body. Thus our goal is not to persuade everyone to go abroad, but to help everyone in our congregations think and act with a global gospel mindset. Because that's the reality, is that every one of us should have a global gospel mindset. And this is exactly what we see uh, in Acts chapter 13 with the church at Antioch um, when at the time of the commissioning and sending of Saul and Barnabas um, at that time uh, the believers were worshipping the Lord and fasting um, perhaps even praying along the lines of the Luke 10 that was mentioned in that, um, that previous quotation that I shared with you. And in that moment the Holy Spirit told them to set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work to which he was calling them. In this case, it was their first missionary journey uh, from Antioch to Cyprus. The church didn't simply release them and send them on their way, though. Uh, Before they sent them on their way, they, they laid hands on them and they prayed over them, and then they sent them on their way. We see this account in Acts chapter 13 where it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, and a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And then later in Acts chapter 14... Luke records that Barnabas and Saul returned to Antioch to give an update about the um, the work that they had done since they departed. It says in Acts chapter fourteen verses twenty-five through twenty-seven. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles so what we see demonstrated here is that the relationship that exists between the church which sends and the individual who goes is symbiotic those who go acknowledge that they are representatives of the church and those who, uh, they, those who go acknowledge that they're representatives of the church uh, from which they're sent out and those who send acknowledge that their perpetual and ongoing support is essential to the task because no one part um, or no one role, whether sending or going, is any less essential than the other. The question then that we ought to ask ourselves is if, is if everyone goes, who will send? Or perhaps the more likely question, if everyone sends, who will go? Now, I know that Based on statistics, the majority of you in this room may not go in the fullest sense, meaning that you will cross over geographical and cultural boundaries for the sake of the spread of the gospel. But before you draw that conclusion and settle there, let me share a few passages with you um, that the Lord has used to inspire within me uh, really an intensifying desire to advocate for unreached and unengaged peoples of the world. Um. In Romans chapter one, um, we we gain this understanding uh, through the Apostle Paul's uh, letter here that um, the Lord has revealed Himself um, through the things that He has created. In Romans one nineteen through twenty, it says that what can be known about God is plain to them because what God has shown it to uh, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly per- perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The first time that I stumbled across this particular or these particular verses, I was struck by the reality of the fact um, that we, um, creation, what we see when we walk out the door, is sufficient for condemnation. That's just the stark reality. What this passage indicates is that the Lord has revealed himself to the point that salvation um, is inexcusable for those who don't surrender to the Lord. But the reality is, is that those people who, um, who look and have no way to perceive, um, they're without excuse Romans ten thirteen through 15, and verse 17 goes on to say, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in who, him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so the reality is, is that while creation is sufficient for condemnation, it is not sufficient for salvation. What is sufficient for salvation is the message of the gospel. And what is clearly indicated here in Romans chapter 10 is that unless someone goes to proclaim the message of the gospel, there are an estimated 3.2 billion people who have little to no access to the gospel. Of that 3.2 billion, approximately 150,000 people will die today alone apart from the message of the gospel. That means that 150,000 people stand condemned before the Lord, all on account of the fact that he has revealed himself through his creation in such a way that they ought to know better when they act in vile and wicked ways. But on account of the fact that they have never heard the message of the gospel, they know no better. I didn't really run the, the numbers on this very quick, but... Obviously, there are other sending agencies, so I don't want to just presume that the IMB is the only agency that is sending missionaries to go to the field, but um, 3,500 is the number of estimated workers that um, the IMB has on the field today. The quick math on that, I think, is that 150,000 people will die today apart from the message of the gospel and there are 3,500 workers out among unreached and unengaged peoples, and so that means that um, if you were to entrust to each one of those people their rightful portion in whom they should uh, be responsible to proclaim that message to before the end of this day, lest they suffer and perish, it would be, uh, what is that? I'm not even good at math off the top of my head. I think you get the weight of what I'm trying to say here, though. There is such a small, uh, small minority of workers who are among such a vast harvest. And I think then that we begin to see the fullest sense. I, let me just read this Luke 10 2 passage right quick. Um, Luke chapter 10, verses uh, chapter 10, verse 2 speaks to the way that we ought to incline our hearts to pray. And I think that if we would incline our hearts to pray, Chapter 10 of Luke, uh, beginning in verse 1, actually. After this, the Lord appointed 72, uh, 72 others and sent them off ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. If we would incline our hearts to pray that the Lord would send laborers out into the harvest, and if we would begin to really wrestle with the weight and magnitude of lostness, and if we would consider these souls of, um, of any value at all, then I think that we would be stirred at the very least to become more engaged in this mission of setting apart and sending out. See, the, the reality is is that one of the marks of a healthy church, as we see in the New Testament, is they, they reproduce. Meaning that, um, that they set apart and they send out following this model that we saw with the church in Acts chapter 13. And it's not that they just set them apart and send them on their way and leave them to be on their own. Because, I mean, Pastor Jeff asked me to make a pitch this morning. The reality is, is that financial support is a vital part of the mission. But that's certainly not it. There are other ways to invest in the mission as well. Um, whether that be by praying that the Lord would send laborers to join, um, to join the laborers who are already there in the midst of such a vast harvest. Um, and what I have found that in the course of time, that as I have inclined my heart to, play, to pray this way, that, um, that the Lord has stirred within me a desire to be at the, the very least an advocate for those who have at, no access to the gospel, because the reality is, is that they stand condemned. Um, and so I think that every follower of Jesus should be fully vested in the Great Commission task of making disciples of all nations. And I think that we, we should do that in one of two ways, by either going or sending. I think that those who do neither, they demonstrate a clear lack of their trust in the authority of Jesus. And the one, uh, Jesus is the one who gave the command to make disciples of all nations. And so, my encouragement to you this morning then, would be that, at the very least, you weigh out what you're currently doing um, to support workers who are out among the harvest. Sure, financial support is good, and I will confirm that after looking at the budget, this is a very generous church. I can attest to that, and I'm thankful for that. That's something to be... uh, tremendously grateful for because that is essential in advancing the message of the gospel but even as we in, enter into a season in which you have the opportunity to give to support the uh, to support the ministry of the international mission board um, when those funds um, go 100 percent towards work among, among unreached unengaged people groups i want to also invite you to join me Um, during the first week in the month of December um, to uh, to take one of these, I've got it somewhere here now, to take one of these week of prayer guides. And I would encourage you to just go through this prayer guide through the first week in the month of December and incline your heart to the Lord's voice and see how he might lead you to invest more of your time and effort in the mission of making disciples of all nations. That's where my heart will be at through the course of that time. And even as in this season of life the Lord has called us um, to, to stay and to invest in the sending ministry of the local church, um, it is our heartfelt desire that there would be some in this room. Because once again, if no one goes, like if we're all if we all just accept this role to send, then great, it's good. It's an essential part of the ministry, but I'm looking at a room full of potential. Like I see potential. I I have sat and conversated with people in this room, and I know that uh, that, uh, that the desire and the passion to see God's glory held high to the to the far reaches of the earth that it's there. But the reality is, is that unless someone goes, then who will? But at the same time, once again, I didn't get up here just to harp on going, going, going. Because once again, there is this other essential aspect of the ministry as well. And that is sending. And so I think that we would do well also to pray, to turn our hearts inward. and, And to even pray from within our church family that the Lord would set apart some. Pray that with me because I'm praying that already. That the Lord would set apart some of you to join the workforce And to go and to advocate among unreached, unengaged people. And and to proclaim the gospel where they live without excuse. Yet dying apart from the message of the gospel. They're condemned to an eternity in hell. So for their sake... Take up this task of making disciples of all nations. And if you're teaching a Sunday school class, you're teaching a small group, whatever it is that you're doing here at the church, do that informed by the vision that is described in Revelation 7, 9, and 10 of a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language surrounding the throne of Jesus. Be informed by that and be inspired by obedience to the Great Commission. And trust me, in due time, I trust that the Lord will Raise up laborers from within this fellowship to be sent out for the sake of the spread of the gospel among the nations. I want to make myself available to you. I've got additional copies of this. Pray with me. I sense that there may even be some of you in the room who, in whom the Lord has already been working. That maybe you have wrestled through Well, what does it look like to go for the sake of the spread of the gospel among nations? I can walk you through that process, and I'll do it gladly. Maybe there are others of you who say, Well, I come to church every week, and I'm just missing out on really, like, what is the purpose? Like, in our gathering together, like, I come, and even even passively, I think, even writing checks... And passing them along to just say, do with it what you please, church family. But, but the reality is is that we can even be intentional with our giving. And that would be my encourage, encouragement to those of you um, who, uh, who are currently invested in the, the ministry that way. Once again, maybe you are in a role where you're established and uh, you're your teaching here uh, in, in a Sunday morning group or um, a Wednesday night group or something like that. I would encourage you uh, to teach informed by God's redemptive plan in all of history. Because I think that when we do that, then we put ourselves in a good position to be able to make a lasting impact on the kingdom. So I'm available to you as I I pray here in a moment. I'm going to make my way out into the lobby. And I want to make myself available to you. If you have questions about what it would look like to go, come and talk to me. Or if you are more interested in getting resources about becoming better at investing in the task of the Great Commission by sending and supporting better, I also would be happy to talk with you about those things as well. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Demonstrated primarily in the fact that you allowed each one of us in this room to be born in a country, Lord, where we have unprecedented access to the gospel. Father, there are people in this world who live under condemnation and yet have no knowledge of the fact that they do 150,000 of them who will die today and yet out there the far reaches of the earth there remain 3.2 billion of them who have never heard and it is such a small force Father who has been raised up and sent out Lord I pray that some would go and yet in the same vein, Lord, I pray that that our church would grow in its desire to pray that you would raise up laborers to be sent out into the harvest. And that even as we pray, as we pray for not only for workers, but as we pray for those people who represent unreached and unengaged peoples in the world, that you might stir in each of our individual lives to help us to take up the task of walking in obedience to the Great Commission. Lord, that every effort that is given within this church and without this church would be for the sake of your honor and glory. And Father, that it would be informed at all times by the joyful scene of a great multitude of witnesses from every nation, tribe, people, and language surrounding your throne. And may it all be to the praise, honor, and glory of your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.